0: Kal t, kal 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 kal
1: Welcome to Resident Advisor's Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name is Mark Smith, and I'm the tech editor of Resident Advisor. This past July, Resident Advisor's 24 7 party series touched down in New York City. Brooklyn fanzine Love Injection was tasked with presenting panel discussions covering five decades of New York dance music history. Today we're hearing about the 90s, an era when mega clubs in Manhattan saw thousands of revelers passing through their doors each weekend. With Strictly Rhythm co-founder Gladys Bizarro, DJ and producer Lenny D, and drag superstar Kevin Aviance, RA staff writer Max Pearl charts the rise and fall of the city's club scene, from the community's halcyon days, through to the slow decay of the Giuliani era. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at RA-Exchange. The exchange on New York Nightlife in the 90s is up next.
2: started. I'm Paul from Love Injection. Oh, thank you. Really. Thanks to RA again for having us. Welcome to the 1990s. <laughs>
0: uh, in a booming economy, New York's landscape was arguably one of the most uh, dense times uh, in its history. Uh, mega clubs were on every corner, packing in thousands every Friday and Saturday night. Places like the original Sound Factory, Limelight, Vinyl, Twilo, Palladium, Funhouse, the list goes on. Uh, RA's very own editor, Max Pearl, Talks to Gladys Pizarro, uh, co founder of AR uh, and AR of uh, Strictly, Strictly Rhythm, which many directly associate as the sound of the 90s, um, uh, rave pioneer and industrial strength records uh, co founder Lenny D, and uh, dancer and performer and New York Vogue ball, Vogue ball legend Kevin Aviance. I'll let Max take it away.
3: Hey, everybody. Um, first of all, thanks to Love Injection for hosting this. They put together all of the panels they did all the booking it's been an incredibly star-studded lineup of talks Um, and thanks to you guys for coming they already did introductions i was going to go and introduce you but um i want to just start by asking okay 1990 new year january where are you
0: i'm in dc washington dc and uh, i just graduated from high school 86 so um, i'm in washington dc i'm jumping in out of trash cans doing trying to become the club kid and then becoming the club kid of the world later on, so. Um, (laughs) And I achieved that.
4: House music was definitely starting to boom in 1990. I mean, I remember freestyle was beginning to die down, and then 1990, there was a a surge of house music. And um, I guess the, the Paradise Garage was at the end of that, right?
0: I didn't you know, ever you know, went. Whatever. I
4: don't know. At, it was beginning. It was the beginning of that, and um, I had just started at Strictly Rhythm, and um, I began began to sign some some house records, and I that's when I started to discover um, people like Roger Sanchez. I was already working with Todd Terry. Um, I started working with Kenny Dope, and um, I was starting to go to the club that. I started to go to was um, Zanzibar, so that's where I got all Jersey. my yeah New Jersey. That's where I um, I met Tony Humphreys, and that was just the beginning for me. Once I I started um, hanging out at Zanzibar, like everything started to change for me on the house in, in the house uh, movement.
3: So before I get to Lenny, I just want to ask, how did you get hooked up with Strictly Rhythm? How did that come about?
4: Oh my God! Um, I started off as a receptionist at Spring Records, and apparently that. That movement at that time, Millie Jackson and Joe Simon, these real soulful artists in the in, in the Midwest, um, like Millie Jackson, the Fatback Band, Joe Simon, those were the um, premier artists on on Spring Records. And at that time, the the music was fading out because um, in 80s, the 80s, um, the new jack swing came, and um, Uptown started just signing guy and teddy riley i mean teddy riley and then puffy came and all these great a new sound came in and those guys started to die down and this music started to um emerge so mark finkelstein who i worked with um he was like look i want to remain in the business because the label i was working for was was no longer and then um you know, he was—he saw that I was going out all the time. I was going to freestyle clubs, I was going to, you know, house clubs, and he's like, um, "I want to open up a label." So I was like, "Yeah," and I need a job. So he opened up an office, and, and we were everything. We were like A and R, packing records, doing everything—just a two-person operation. And um, and then that was it. I was going out to clubs all the time, and I was looking for the DJs or DJs or producers that were. Um, you know, that was producing house music. And it took me it took me a while, like five releases. I put out five releases until um, I met this guy named Wayne Gardner. And he was the one that gave me um, the warning. And that was the record that opened the door for me.
3: Okay, so you were out in Jersey partying. You're in D.C.
5: Lenny, you were down in Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn? That's Is where that right? I was living. But in New Year's Eve in the 90s, I was in Europe, probably in Germany or something at that time. Because I was really starting to play in Europe. I started at the end of the 80s. I was producing all this electronic music that here in New York nobody really liked, actually. But, you know, I'll be honest. Thank God for Europe, you know. It opened me up to a lot more than just what was happening here. And once I started, you know, I started having a lot of hits. (laughs) Funny enough, I listen back, I don't know. But, yeah, I had a lot of hits at this time. And then basically... I experienced, I think, electronic music in a different way than everyone here, actually, because I experienced it here in the 80s with one DJ, the fashion, all of these things. And when the 90s kicked off for me, all that superficial stuff was out the window, and it was about making music and pushing electronic music beyond what the 80s was already doing because at the time I produced my first record in '83, and I think I produced about 950 yeah. records, you know. So at at this point, I look back at it and I said, you know, all the disco is what really got me into it. Then the, you know the the electronic, EBM, and early industrial, and I started, you know, I was young, so I started absorbing everything and everything and everything. And by the time it came to the '90s man i think i was uh <laughs> pretty well experienced in listening to a lot of music so what i brought to the table which was these generations before the new producers in the 90s were not exactly into disco and all these other things so i always felt i had a little bit of an advantage um you know in just my hostility towards finding new music was crazy in the 90s Really, 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 was the breakdown to everything. There was no more one DJ anymore. If you go to Europe, there were 50 DJs. You can call it a festival, but it was a rave. So you know, and then this came back to New York a bit. I took all the guys that were later to become doing all the limelight. I took them with me to a club I used to resident at uh, in London called Heaven, which was owned by Richard Branson. <laughs> funny, funny enough. And uh, yeah, I brought I brought all the guys, gave them loads of pills and everything else that I was experiencing. We were doing parties in Staten Island that were completely packed. You know, like Manhattan didn't want anything to do with us. So the, when we were doing it, while everyone was doing, well, I was already doing the house music, we, we were making parties out in Brooklyn. Funny enough, we're all here now, right? So, and a lot of music at that time was made here in Brooklyn. In fact, not too far from here. Like Mentasm, Joey Beltram, Frankie Bones, Tommy Musto, Damon Wilde. I mean, I could keep going on and on and on. So we had this scene where it was like, we're making great music, but no one's letting us play. So we're just going to do it ourselves. Screw it. Just like what we were doing in Europe. You know, half those parties were not legal, in fact. So, you, you know, here, I think Giuliani and all those bastards that were running New York City fucked this country up big time, especially here. Because I felt like it took 10 years of the 90s, every party, police, this, that, crushing this music in California Chicago. I was playing all over the country at that time. So at the end of the day, it was like, yeah, I kind of think that the, you know, I've never seen the police ever take so much attention on like, you know, and there was hip hop too. And that shit wasn't, you know, all, you know, nicey dicey either. So they were just picking on us. I think it was a little easier for them. But um, yeah, that's... That's my little 90s thing, so, I guess. <laughs> it's,
3: you bring up hip-hop, and one of the things I wanted to talk about is I get the sense that in the 90s, it was still sort of like a, a mix-up of people would play freestyle, they'd play house, they'd play maybe high energy,
5: um, and a lot of people were moving back and forth between multiple worlds. Yeah. Do you feel I, like... I was definitely doing that. I yeah. was producing freestyle records. I did some like high energy records as well. You know, I was really. Um, I used to work at a distributor up at Northcott um, distributing European imports. So that's what really got me even more motivated from doing the disco uh, to stuff like from that, and then it started getting into like my own music, then Chicago music. All that stuff was was mingling around, you know. And I was playing at roller discos back at the end end of the 80s so I had a lot of You know, I was still doing a lot of crazy things. But, yeah, it was a lot of a shift. But with hip-hop, I don't know, for me, I kind of took what they were doing, really, because I said, you know, they were just making shit, stealing shit, putting it out, and it was real. And that's what we were doing here in New York and in Chicago and all these places, you know. It was a bass line, a drum machine, but, yeah, that's how we expressed it. Or there was some silly vocal, or, shit, I used to just rob the hip-hop tracks. Fuck it. They would rob everything, too. So the music itself was kind of a montage of a lot of things especially for electronic music if you go back that far you know you'll get simple tracks and then I made these tracks with Frankie Bones which are just like DJ mixes really we just like took everything we could and just made sense of it in some other way so I think the 90s were pretty creative when it comes to the music it just kind of grabbed everything right and just shoved it in
3: so Kevin, did you you came to clubbing via the ballroom scene?
0: No, I came through clubbing because of I started in D.C., Washington D.C. at the Tracks nightclub. I'm kind of like the traveling, <clears throat> the traveling queen club. So I just to go to all the clubs on the east coast, west east, east coast. Um, starting D.C. and then going down to Miami when Miami was hot in South Beach, and then getting my drag. Uh, legs i met some kids from new york that had moved to south beach and they pretty much got me together before i got to new york and um which means you know makeup hair all that drama i used to wear big hair and big tits and everything like that and thought i was just everything and um got to new york and found out i wasn't everything and then uh new york became a where I took it all off, the wig, and then the, I did the club kid scene first, and um, the club kid scene was, that's what my thing was. We had a party in D.C. called Kindergarten. We'd bring the kids down from, from Project X Magazine. Um, Amanda and, and Michael, everybody would come down and put them on a bus and make them come down, pay them, and send them back. And then we used to come up to D.C., come to New York with three busloads of people to the sound factory. And um, that would happen every weekend. It started with just a van, then a bus, then we got up to three buses every weekend to go to the Sound Factory, and that was where it all like turned it for me. You know, that's. Then finally, I moved to New York, and it was like, wow, it's hard here. It's very hard here. It's very weird here. It's very crazy, but it was so fast and it was so different to what I was used to, and then. You know, um, I met some really nice kids here, and um, Cesar Glendo, and um, I had, you know, the little club kid thing on me, but I was, I was a Sound Factory person. That was my whole thing. And then I met a, well, that's how it is. So, you know. The rest. (laughs) Um,
3: At what point did you join the House of Aviance?
0: I've been in the House of Aviance since DC, so that's where we're all from, DC. And um, I was discovered by a gentleman named Juan Aviance. Junior did not discover me. (laughs) Junior did not discover me. Junior did not discover me. Could be a good track, I'll tell you right now. Junior did not discover me. Okay. I could do it for you if you want. Okay. Junior did not discover me. Um, it's a hit, everybody. I <laughs> can tell you. Remember this day. Juan Aviance discovered me, and um, he said that I held something fierce, and he gave me the name Aviance, and I was to do as I pleased with the name. And um, I decided to change my name to Kevin Aviance. And back then, you know, Queens had girls' names. So it was like, God, but I never looked fish. So it was just like, you know, which was looking female. I was always a beast looking like a woman. It was just not good. It was not cute. I was never going to look feminine. It was never going to happen. So, But my whole thing was that my silhouette was fish. So I like being in the dark, and there was a silhouette happening, and that's me. When the light turned on me, raw. So that, that, was the, that was the effect. It worked. You know what I mean? People loved it. Club kit. You know what I mean? So that's how it happened. So, Gladys, was, was Sound Factory home
3: for you, too? Is that, like, one of the defining...
4: Yeah, definitely. You saw, yeah, Sound Factory was awesome. You know, I had a relationship with Junior, so that was awesome because whenever I had a new record, I just go um, see Junior and he'll he'll play it. So I had a great relationship, and that was definitely one of my top clubs in New York.
3: So that was sort of part of the promo process, is like if, <laughs> if Junior plays your record, it's a big tune.
4: Yeah. Uh, he definitely liked everything I would send him. I or send him um, with DJ Pierre, um, any of those tracks, he just killed it. Like, that he was cry like, girl. hello, 15 minutes of Generate Power or just anything I give him um, in regards to, I'll forget that, yeah, wow.
3: you know. Can you tell us about Junior Vasquez's style a little bit, like give us a sense of what made him
4: so Oh special. my God, I just remember one day, i never forget, um, I didn't hear Gypsy Woman by Crystal Waters yet, but he played that, I, it's just I'll never forget. I was in the, on the dance floor and you hear that, and then when the beat came in, it just completely everybody was just like, oh, la, da, dee, da, da, da. La, I mean, the, you can still hear that record today, and I still get, yeah, like my hair stand up because it was just the sound system like this, like the tweeter. It was just the way he played it. There was just a specific passion of how he took records and 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 mixed them for like 15 20 minutes but had something going oh my god yeah like tingling yeah. it was just an experience that you had to be there to experience that and that was just something special that junior brought to the table and um, it's unfortunate that it once in a while he still plays but if anyone when he does play and you want an ex- an amazing experience? Really try and go here and play. I think, well, um, Gay Pride finished, but he does certain parties from like maybe he plays once or twice a year in the city. But please no, don't. No, it's
0: nice, it, that that time, that moment, that sound system, that that analog, that 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 boom, 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 it's like going through your system and you're just like, girl, work. <laughs> you know, and it's just like, you have no idea that the tracks would come in and it'd just be like, th- you would wait for one record to play. That's all you needed, your one favorite record and everybody had the same record. So it would be like Gypsy Woman or um, Christian W's um, oh, Feel, uh, uh, feel, feel, like feel you What You Want, feel, oh Lord, girl. Oh. Feel What You Want, I mean, like, these records were like, so iconic in like like in hearing love dancing or devotion i want to give you devotion girl hello god.
4: i know yeah just talking about it you can see that we're still like oh my god you still get that that chill that you know it's unfortunate i mean it's not unfortunate cuz you can still get that especially overseas you go to minute there's specific clubs that still have that kind of sound system and um when you hear that that Record that, of course, was mixed properly. I mean, there's Francois K right there, who's one of my amazing remixes Right, that I mean, I got to give him amazing credit. It's funny because I, I, always, I used to look at the records and be like, man, these guys are cool. And then when I actually met him, look, I'm like, I was like, wow, I got to meet Francois K. Like, that's really fucking cool. So you know, it's like, it's all again, also um, how you mix your record, because. You know, in order to get that sound the way you hear it in a club, I got to give credit to those guys that mix the the record, you know, because that's really, really important and, and mastering. But that's a whole different other.
0: And they used to play the record. Like the record would start from the beginning... To the end, and you would hear the whole song, whether they mixed it or not, they would always play the beginning or play some sort of a beginning, their beginning, and then bring the track in, and then you would hear the vocals or the beat or whatever the whatever you're living for, and they would bring that song right out, and then the next record would start. There was no repeating that record again, you know what I mean that unless it was like really, 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 really big I mean really I mean. You know, you, we got to hear that record again, but it would be like only a 45 or forty-five, no, forty-five single version or something like that. But um, yeah. So talking
3: about remixing and labels and the label side of things, uh, I think of the 90s as a place that you still had some major label money being thrown around. And like someone from the underground might be able to do a major label remix, or they might get scouted and signed to a major label. And there was more of a connection between the underground and the overground. Um, is that something that like that you thought was like a defining factor? Yeah,
4: I mean, I'm a huge Masters at Work fan, and whenever you heard a, well a, a remix by those guys, I mean, there were 10, nine out of ten, right? I mean, they were always like to me, my my personal opinion, they were always make these amazing remixes, and also Hex Hector, you know, Hex Hector took a, a R&B song and just turned it. Like, you know, like, made some amazing remixes. You know, Whitney Houston. um, Oh, my God, there's so many. Deborah Cox. Right? Just, you know. And, of course, there's so many others, but those are the only ones that I could think of at the moment.
0: Um, I was very lucky to actually have a recording career, and um, by meeting a gentleman named... um, Steve Travolta, who introduced me to Gerald Black, who happened to be on Strictly Rhythm, and um, they brought me in and asked me, did I want to do a track? and i seen some peer pi- seen some of these little kids at the pier, and these little these two little kids, one Latin one one black, and they were like in a mirror, and they were doing all this stuff to it. and they said, girl, I'm cunty," and I was like, I just, you know, wrote it down. We didn't have phones back then, so I was just like logged it. And then they asked me about, you know, do you have an idea for a song? They played the beat for me, and I was like, oh, girl, that beat is cunty. He said, what's cunty? And I said, well, I saw that, and he's gonna say cunty. And he says, oh, well, that's too cunty. And so, and that's how we got started doing, um, doing tracks and stuff. And then that's when I met uh Ora Lee, which used to work for Francois, working at um, Wave. And ended up signing to Wave Music and having a, a an album come out, a box of chocolates.
3: Lenny, did you ever do any major label work?
0: Yes, lots of lots of work, actually. I mean, what got me
5: into it was Francois Jellybean. When I was buying records in the '80s, when I was younger, uh, before I was really DJing, um, I was intrigued by what that even meant, mixing and doing all this. I know they, I knew they were DJs, but so i mean I, I i then pursued like audio engineering i have a degree in that so i kind of like went went more of the music end. but that's what really got me enticed to everything it was just wow like what are these sounds how are they putting it all together i knew what djing was because i already was starting to play but i, I couldn't figure out what that meant so that's what really pulled me into it all from there and then the remixes and all the other things started to come over time you know i wasn't really thinking about remixes but you know when when a good band came along and, and i've had some really good ones so yeah it, it, for me it's kind of a personal thing with a remix i don't just take any anything i have to be able to think what am i going to be able to do to this that's not already there and so yeah i've had a lot of mixes and stuff
0: i will say that um during the time of me recording um, i remember recording the first time with junior vasquez and he said uh, to me that um, you can 't sing your way out of a, out of a trash tip, out of a trash bag, and I was like okay you 're going to eat your words one day okay so I did kanti and then uh, I met Orly and Orly Francois. And I remember working with francois and' just meeting him for the first time i 've never met a man so into music the way he was he we did Dindada recorded Dindada and uh, I got to meet George and which is like, who gets to meet the guy who actually gets to do, I mean, he was very, he made sure that we got to meet to get his approval first to see whether we, he liked the song or not to even put this thing out. And I, I want to say thank you to Francois for that because that was like, when George Kranz says, yeah, I love it, and that, you know, you remember that day, right? It was just like incredible you know, to see the song that we used to dance to, Dandada, that I'm actually lip syncing it in a drag show, and that I'm actually doing it and performing, and then George Cranz tells me he gives my approval for it. It was just an amazing moment. The moment I can't. I,
5: I did a remix of George Grant's second single, so I <laughs> figured
3: I'd throw it out there. And everyone's connected by Francois K. Yeah,
4: no doubt.
5: Helmut Kohl is thought.
3: Um, so, as mentioned in the 80s panel, I think we should talk about Giuliani. Um. Wow.
5: Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, you could see the microphone just went up on me, huh? Um, So
3: 1994, Giuliani becomes the mayor of New York City. Right. Enacts this new campaign to clean up the city. Right. Uh, Do you feel the effects of that in the club world and in the music scene?
5: Well, to me, it pushed everything back here like shitloads. You know what I mean? I mean, even now you look at EDM and you just think, well... You know that shit was happening here all over America back in the '90s. You know, but all the—it wasn't just Giuliani. It was everybody out in L.A. Man, <laughs> that shit was bad. You know, cops and all these things. So, I think it kind of pushed kids away from listening to it a bit, and you know, the 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 whole culture didn't really take off until just recently, really. So I kind of think it really pushed everything back. I mean, put everything back in the underground, that's for sure. And,
0: you know, to make a party, you, you might have to get arrested for it back then. For, I was for, the, at the least oh, for sorry, us, you know sorry. what I mean? I was the queen that closed the club. So, all the clubs that were open, they were running really fiercely. I was the one that was actually the last queen there. They're like the Palladium, I closed that one down. The Sound Factory, closed that one down. So, dude, that's what I felt from Giuliani. I was like that queen. The Boy Bar closed down. I mean, I was. But, the, but I do have to
5: say, though, like the Limelight, which I was the, one of the residents at, was pretty much. <laughs> I, I don't care if Giuliani was there. Whatever, When that door was shut, Fucking everything went on in there between like multiple fucking you know yeah juice things full of ecstasy and freaking everybody freaking out. I think that was the most the, the the closest I seen to Europe was was the limelight and the whole culture, the club kids, yeah, Yoki and all of us guys there really you know pushing music in a different way. Like I remember playing like you know T ninety nine and Quadrophony and all this rave music. Which was really the dominant thing in the rest of the planet, really, at that point. So I kind of felt that that was a great home base for me to come back to New York and to play all these new records that, you know, you can maybe get in one or two shops here in New York. So it was, um, yeah, it was like a really kind of a resistance. I kind of felt like, fuck you, motherfucker. I'm going to just make music and just go out and I don't care if the cops come because, you know, then they changed these laws about selling water and all this. Yeah, I was not in the clubs. I was in the battleground, so it was a little different for me, but...
4: Um, I got to say that at that time what I could remember, there was, um, like, ecstasy overload at the clubs and um yeah. that really, really <laughs> pissed. I don't remember if someone overdosed over it and then the... I, I think that was one. a
0: combination of things yeah. that they overdosed. They didn't That drink. was it. They, like did, they was... started charging for the water, I think, and the people weren't drinking the water, so people were drying up really fiercely on the dance floor. I remember people started sitting on the dance floor. That's I remember the Palladium, and they're sitting on the dance floor, and I'm like, "This going, why are you guys sitting? Because they couldn't move. They were just like." caratanic and you know special K hit and then it was like you know unfortunately we it, we have to talk about these things because drugs who had designer drugs the the, the Kiki drugs were those were the cute things back then i mean there was just like that was the look and um it, it was, was a kinda, messy look it was it was for some children yeah but um for some people it was the, it was the way to transcend the music too the, the people were there for the music <laughs> to do it. Unfortunately, people weren't dancing. They were like feeling they were all in much marsh- marsh- The mar- Oh, I got marshmallow legs. Whoa, marshmallow legs. You know what I mean? Hold on, girl. Hold on. You know, it was very that. I mean, I just think of the
3: 90s as a time of uh, like excess and overload and intensity and in s- general across and, the board. And silver.
5: <laughs> yeah, it was totally excess for sure. Like and just, I, I did a show with the prodigy out in, uh, in England and man, if you wanted to see kids oh. totally excessing on fucking pills, man, it was like
2: pew
5: straight down the line, ten thousand heads right to the end. Everybody beamed. They gave up, they gave me more light than the lasers out of their eyes. I was like, oh. fuck it out. And then there was a point where if you can't beat them, join them. And, uh, you know, that definitely made me dive further into electronic music, I have to say. It was a very, ecstasy was a, it changed a lot of things for a lot of musicians, producers, especially in, in Europe, where I was pretty much, was my home base at
0: the time. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, people know. used to go to the sound factory, and before, you would get there at 4 o'clock. you get there at 4 o'clock, from 4 to 6. That was your time to get yourself together. So literally, you would—why are you laughing? This is true. (laughs) You used to get yourself together, collect your coins, whatever. And then you go stand in line to get your la la la. And then you go wait, and there'll be a line—really long line—and you sit there. Okay, and and then you wait two an hour, hour and a half. That's when you heard, um, "Dun dun, uh, let's go, let's go." When that song came on, it was on let's go let's go they'd be like okay all right let's do this and and for the next 12 hours you were like you know do it it. 12 12 hours
3: i also think the 90s as the the end of the big room era like uh, i think in new york city now we don't get anything beyond the capacity of this like even this is pretty big for the current scene um did you guys do a lot of big room partying? Like, were you were you doing these like 1,500 capacity?
0: Yeah, I was used to performing for at least 3,000 people. I mean, on Saturday night, that was like, the Palladium was like, they would double it. I mean, the, the, when they hired me at the Palladium, it was to scare the straight people so they could have the gay after hours. So I'd have to be there at nine, and from nine to three, I scared the straight people. And then, no, seriously, and then, literally, they told me that. And then from f- 4 o'clock, when the, we could, when the other girls would come in, the other children, then I could be nice. But then that, there was a whole thing about the straight kids. like The, like the, the straight boys would like want to stay, and the girls would want to go because they'd be drunk already. And it'd be like this other switcher drama, 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 drama. <laughs> drama, drama. I, I mean, love Jersey, I, in, by the in way.
5: In the 90s, I played a lot of big rooms. This is a club in Italy I still play. And I'll never forget it, I broke the record when I played there, like, I I was the headliner for this party. 22,000 people in one club room. In one club? That's
3: like a festival.
5: No, it's a club. It's the biggest club I've ever seen. The guy who owns it, he just, he's crazy, he just buys things and the club has a coliseum, it has like two, three swimming pools, it's indoor, it's outdoor, but I'm
0: talking 22,000 people inside the club so. also that's the time of the circuit parties started that's too. Crazy. circuit parties also started in the, U- in the u.s so that was another thing big phenomenon with the raves were happening the gays started these things called circuit parties yeah. were like destination parties and that was the at the <laughs> the craziness so that's um did clubs have tough door policies no, you know what? At Sound Factory, everybody paid twenty dollars.
5: Everybody had to but pay. M- was there? Was there like you don't get in? You get there was like, some you picking and choosing going on for sure. I mean, at the limelight, it was wasn't easy to always get in there. You know, in the in the earlier days, I but I think it got kind of easier in the end of the nineties for sure.
4: People had to wait, especially at the tunnel. You know, I think wasn't Vin Diesel like the yeah, it doorman there? Yeah, it was right? wow. He
0: yeah. was. You heard it here wow. first. Wow, uh, that'll be in the book, I bet.
4: And yeah, people he have was to there. wait.
0: Yeah, uh, in the shelter. In the shelter. <laughs> I mean, you had to make an effort to get to the door. I mean, I never had a problem at the door, but thank God. But um, but you had to like, you know, I remember like the Roxy had problems with. I know, like all the black kids couldn't go in the club at one time at the Roxy. So you, if you were a black kid, you had to go with a bunch of white children to get into the club, and then you met your black friends inside. And that's the true story. Mm-hmm. Huh? Yeah, it's still kind of happening. So, you know, it's kind of crazy that this is 1990s and things like that are happening, but you find a way to deal with it, you know, and do it. Because you want the dance floor.
3: In these panels, we've talked a a fair amount about gentrification and and rising rent prices and the effect that that has on music scenes and on nightlife. Um, Was that something that was in your mind in the 90s? Like, were you actively thinking about how, were you already thinking, or is that something that's especially acute now?
0: Um, you're talking about, I was a black, bald-headed, not tucked, wearing high heels, a skirt, a G-string, and could not care less what people had to say to me. The only problem I had in the 90s was at the Roxy, they asked me to, the girls that were my backup dancers, they asked me, could I get white girls? And I said, they are white. (laughs) They just had dark makeup on. That was the only really... That's the only kind of, because like, you know, doing Latino, black, you know, that was like, like darker makeup, like that's the look, so. You, you know. weren't
3: aware of like the fact of clubs getting pushed out of neighborhoods or neighborhoods no longer being possible to party no. in because it was too expensive
5: or? For sure. That's not, that wasn't in the, in the awareness yet? In the no. 90s, no, no, no. I, don't, I don't think anybody, no, that, it wasn't, you that's know. only, I think that's something new. You know, and it wasn't, I don't, I don't recall any of that kind of thing.
4: That's now with bottle service.
5: Yeah, I think yeah. yeah.
4: You don't have. Let's that, talk
5: about yeah. bottle service.
4: Oh my God, I went to uh, for Winter Music Conference. Um, yeah,
2: a lot of I couldn't service. believe it.
4: There, there was a club that Eric Murillo was playing, and they weren't taking anybody unless you were doing bottle service. And that, it was a pair. It was a um, a couple coming in, and they had they had to pay like one hundred and fifty a person each. I couldn't. I've never seen that. It was like you can't be that desperate to come to this club. But um, we yeah, used to go people, get a
0: bottle down the street and bring that in. To the club, so, <laughs> but I it was like you know, I
4: couldn't believe it. It was just like I don't know what they talk about. You know, <laughs> and and believe believe it or not, there were people outside waiting to get in, and they were just picking people like if, you know almost Studio Fifty Four policy.
5: I mean, that's I, what I think I, the '90s also kind of for me kind of you know was a little different. After a point, all that stuff that was from before, because I was playing in fields parties and like warehouses and all these things all that stuff just for me anyway wasn't really a there was none of that if you wanted to get a bottle well if you didn't bring it in the party then you ain't got a bottle so at the end of the day you know it was kind of like really you were roughing it kind of like almost like some of these festivals but with no bathrooms and all kinds of mm-hmm. things so bottles were the least of the problem i think for me you know because the 90s for me showed that it was kind of you know a, a, because i was teaching a lot in europe it was the club thing wasn't important anymore there were a few legendary clubs in europe that I, we were playing at all the time like the rex club and you know like i said heaven and all these things but at the end of the day most of the parties were were taken to the people or they were put in a location that's not supposed to have a party in it and it's sort of like you know sort of kind of like hip hop i guess in a way that's how i kind of experienced like electronic music i was kind of too young not old enough but you know so to to me like a lot of the clubs when I was just just getting old enough, every time it seemed like I was old enough to get in, fucking Giuliani or some motherfucker would just raise the alcohol level so I couldn't get in. So, kind of like going to raves and all that shit kind of made more sense, uh, you know, to me anyway. But then I was old enough to drink, so it's it still made sense, really. I don't know. It was about really mu- more music, and you'd hear all these different things from different people. And so it was more cultural, I think, in a way. Like when people went to a rave party out in in England, it was more like, hey, we're not hearing this music on the radio. We're not getting this anywhere else. What the fuck? We want to go see what this is. And it just overwhelmed some of these towns, you know, where they got like maybe 10 cops. What are you going to do when there's 5,000 people? You gonna arrest everybody? You know, you, you couldn't, you know, so you couldn't. So it started to become more the norm. To go outside of the clubs, uh, you know, than actually in the clubs. And and for me, like the clubs in Europe at the time were kind of old. You, you know what I mean? Like I was playing at the Dorian Gray, which was inside Frankfurt Airport. Like you can go to the club, party, get them out of the club, and check into the fucking gate. And, you know, yeah. So, but the sound systems were older. And I think, you know, all the new music we were looking to get better sound systems, let's go to a club, let's make a warehouse, like the Hacienda started out kind of that way as well. So, you you know, like all this stuff in Europe wasn't really coming here because we had all these great clubs. So, you, you know... I think you guys have a better look on the clubs here. It was in Europe it was kinda of the opposite sort of thing.
0: I had residencies all over different clubs in different cities. So during the week I would like to either fly to Paris or fly to London or fly to go to Atlanta, go to back streets, or go to LA and go to circus. So I was kinda of like travelling when the, when I was in here on the weekends and you know, when I started gigging a lot and performing, you know, the songs and stuff, I really wasn't in New York at all at all. And so it was kinda of weird because I was just like working so much. It was just like I was missing out on Saturday night because I, then they wanted me for the Saturday night gigs at these other cities. So it was kind of like I kind of missed that whole, I guess, the end of like '90. No, yeah, like '99. I missed because it was just I was working too much. So
3: I wanted to ask you about the the ball scene.
0: Um, um, the ball, okay. So the thing about the ball scene with me, um, I walked the ball in '19. Ninety before I moved to New York, and we the house of our events, we got on a van, we came here, and I walked the ball at the uh, the Mark Bar, the Mark barroom on in Union Square, and uh, it was for the Extravaganza Ball, and um, we worked we me and my my friend my my co house person whatever uh, we walked Butch Queen up in drag, and we thought we were so fierce, and they said to us. Giddy up, giddy up, deal, Linda Blair, Linda Blair, <laughs> and they chopped us. And I was like, "Oh no, we are really made. <laughs> we need, we need to go back and redo this. This is not cute." And then I never walked the ball until then. The main, my, my thing in the ballroom is that I had Cunty. Cunty became a uh, a femme queen, a a song to to show gender. I mean, it was just like, feeling Kunti was like a, 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 a feeling. It was the thing. That beat was uh, Masters at Work, and it was the da 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 ha dance and stuff, and then Kunti, the word Kunti, became such a scandal to, to, to people that it kind of like liberated a lot of people. And um, then when I did Dindada, it became The New Way of Vogue, and um, that song actually changed hand hand performance, and so that's my uh me writing my me, them writing my name in the um the, the history of the ballroom. Um, I didn't get my 10s until many, many years later because I have to get my 10s. I had to get my 10s because here I am. I'm part of a community that I really wasn't walking in, but even though I was Kevin Aviance and I was representing for all, of them, all my brothers and sisters. But I, at the same time, it was like, you know, they used to call me the Uncle Tom Drag Queen because I was the only, you know, the black girl, <laughs> the black queens to sit and, you know, performing for all these, you know, white. You know, big dance floors, and they didn't. And a lot of people didn't like that, or didn't understand me with kids. But they didn't understand that I was. You know, that was where the money was, and so that's where I, where was where the money was, and they got it. You know what I mean? It wasn't about black or white for me, but you know, when you're being called that, and you realize that wow, these kids are, these kids because they weren't they weren't accepting everybody into the clubs back then. You know what I mean? And you know, it was very 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 different. And then eventually people started going to clubs. You have to understand there were black clubs back then, you know? There were black gay clubs. there were Latino clubs. And so everybody went to clubs that were comfortable for them, you know? When they went to the big clubs, it was just like, you know, okay, let's venture out. This is different kind of music. Wow, this is, you know. It's just, it was just different times, so. Yeah.
3: So I think we have like five minutes left, so I want to ask, um, looking at this now and the current landscape of what's going on, like, how do you, how do you feel how do you feel the health of the scene is in comparison to what was happening in the 90s?
5: Well, you can't really compare the two, really. It's just like comparing the 60s and the 70s, really. You can't. So I think it's healthy now. I see Brooklyn really getting happening, you know? I I don't want to spend too much time in Manhattan as of lately, so I'm, I'm a little unsure, but I think... This generation has really, you know, I mean, look around you. You know, you're in a different space. You're you're feeling different things, and I think there's a lot of these bars and a lot of trendy things that are happening, and I think it's really good. And you know, back in the day, y- you wouldn't hear all this different kinds of music. You can hear house, disco, techno, shit, even hardcore here now. So, so you can hear all this different music everywhere. Where in the 90s, I felt like you had the you had the clubs, and that was where you would go. You know, it's it wasn't like oh shit, I'm going here in Brooklyn. I mean, unless you were doing rave. Forties or something in the 90s the clubs were really really good here um you know it's just that the the 90s itself you know like for me anyway it was it was about kind of breaking the mold of everything before you know It, it just felt that way anyway i don't know if it was if i did it or not but i think i tried so yeah i think um i think I think it's healthy as hell here. I mean, look at output over in Williamsburg. That that shit's pumping. I played a couple of weeks ago and it was great. So, you know, you couldn't think in the '90s you'd go to like a little place in Brooklyn and think they'd even be people there. You know what I mean? So the limelight all the big clubs, they you know. So the, so I think it's 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 coming good. I think it's. it's Beginning of something special. <laughs> I'm
4: laughing. Of course, you can't even compare. There's just no comparison from the 80s to the 90s to today. I mean, I'm happy that I was able to experience the 90s, well, the 80s, the disco era. You know, the the freestyle, the the hip hop, the house, and you know, of course, now it's not the same, but it's it's evolving, and um, you know, they're doing their own thing, and there's and I see that the future is going to be bright. You know, in terms of, you know, the the house community, um, the house, the house heads, they're going to do their own thing and they're going to experience their own, you know, their own productions and values or, you know, whatever they're going to do.
5: And it's the way the kids consume music now, too. They actually want to go out and hear this. But you know, In the 90s, it, yeah, hit or miss, you know, like on the, I'm talking the majority, you know, you had you people into it. But now it seems to hit much wider
4: group of people. Yeah, And and it definitely came back. I was waiting. I was like, you know, cuz the, the EDM movement came and then um, I was like, oh man, when is house? Like, what's what's going on with house? And definitely the house the house from the 90s is almost what's happening now but kicked up a notch. And um, and it's good to see that there's a there's all you guys enjoying it. Um, and Brooklyn is definitely happening. Not happening like before it was in Manhattan, but you know, you guys got it going on over here. So yeah, I see that the future is bright for you for the house community.
0: Um I don't understand what's going on at all. Um, <laughs> oh really you know, i I am someone that's just like, I want to walk into a place and feel the beat and be and be taken over by it and yeah. feel it and go home and go, "Girl, that record, turn me out, but I don't get that anymore so um so now, but recently. Recently, this man right here, him, that guy right there. He I swear out? to you, God, so even he's though trouble was, even, in though, even though it was an old record that I heard forever, I literally cried on the dance floor. And I haven't cried in so long. And it was so beautiful and so incredible. And I just want to say thank you for that night. Um, what I will say to you is that... Um, you know, a lot of art, a lot of beauty, a lot of um, uh, really incredible stuff can come out of the club. Don't give up on the clubs. Don't give up on the spaces. Don't give up on yourselves. Don't be so, don't, don't be so just like, you know. So when you see a fierce queen, or you see if someone are being artistic, go up to them and say you like it, or say you don't like it. Give them some response. They need that. That's what that's what makes the energy. Yeah. You know, don't be rude and nasty. But at the same time, it's like you know they're being a visual for you. They're 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 giving you something. They want to know what's going on now. Now we do that all the time with Facebook. Stop doing the Facebook thing. Stop doing the thing. It's something about this meeting people, music and dancing and touching and getting on the floor and grooving. Get off the damn phones.
4: But yeah, I was just gonna take the phones
0: and stick it up your butt. I swear to you, God, that phone is the worst thing in the whole world. Leave it at home. Tell the the clubs need to take the phones from everybody, lock them up, and call it a day. That's what will save the clubs. Get off your phone. Stop Instagramming. So keep it personal for yourself if they had have have pictures of all the what we did in the 90s none of us will be here we'll be in jail well, well okay? that's something
5: I wanted to touch on too like the 90s visually is really underrepresented Across, every, I mean, if you guys have even seen the parties that I've been playing at, that are not even like filmed, you know. If you think about the technology, right? If you wanted to film that good, the fucking camera was like this, you know what I mean? It wasn't like a little cell phone. So this generation's getting a lot of visuals. In the '90s, you didn't see. You if you saw a camera coming, you'd be like, "Oh girl, yeah, all yeah, right." Like, it Was like, "Oh shit, who put we'll the camera?" Girl. You know what I mean? It was like crazy.
4: But I think that's that's one of the and problems the that I have. Like, that's one of the <laughs> problems right now. You know, you don't get to enjoy the the sound. I mean you don't get to enjoy the party because you're constantly looking at the dj and you're um you're taping it so it's funny from the perspective of the G- of the Dj looking at the crowd instead of dancing like how we used to do everybody's like this i mean the if, whole, yeah the if you had a everybody if you're at if you're at a
0: nightclub yeah. night okay and you're there for anything else but just to dance and listen to music, take your butt home <laughs> give the space to somebody that wants to be there okay. Ooh. I'm serious. Like, yeah. It. Like, just leave it at home. Because if you're coming to a club to release yourself, take it to the dance floor, and then feel something, and just let it go so you can be up in the next morning, fine. Come to the dance club. Otherwise, come on, y'all. Really. Think about it. Come to a club. Get sweaty. Yeah. You know, lose some of that out of your body. Get into the music. Get into the DJ. Get into what's around you. And stop bringing your world when you can live in another world and separate it and just, like, come on. Life has got to be so mundane if that's the case, if that's the case. If, you, if you're not really taking hold of these nightclubs, you know what I mean? Like, you have got to – we need you, you know? They need you. I need you, you know? You know your, your brain holds these elements way better than a picture. You'll
5: always remember a great night in a club a in Feeling is, it will always go, be there with oh, you. Remember That's this? why we
4: can still talk about yeah. it. Yeah. That
0: feeling so, will always be there, girl. That know, feeling will arise.
4: Right. One more thing I wanted to say um, – Oh, I lost my train of thought.
0: Because you were feeling it, girl. Yeah, no, no. That was the 90s. Okay. You were feeling you a gotta moment, pay to play. It, girl.
4: Oh, you were feeling
0: yeah. a moment, honey. That's
3: real. It's real like that. I'm going to leave us on oh, that yeah. inspirational Thomas, note. Thomas, <laughs> Thomas, Thomas, thank you, guys.
2: Thank you. you, guys. Thank you. Thomas, Thomas, Thomas. i